Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Evan Myers. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Dr. Alan Gelzo. Dr. Gelzo is the Senior Research Scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University, as well as Director of the Initiative on Politics and Statementship at the University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. For our winter 2022 issue, Dr. Gelzo authored an essay making the case that we sometimes misunderstand the purpose and role of federalism in the constitutional system devised by the American founders. When a political party or group is dissatisfied with the national government's decisions, they often call for more power to be devolved to state or local decision makers in the name of federalism. But the founders had a richer understanding of federalism, Dr. Gelzo writes, one that did not simply privilege states' rights or localism, but was concerned with, quote, keeping power as much out of the hands of the scheming and the unpredictable, whether they be at the local, state, or national level. Dr. Gelzo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's very good to be here, and my thanks to Dan and Evan for making this possible. Certainly. So, Dr. Gelzo, I want to start, of course, where you start your piece in your intro. And you have this great quote at the beginning where you say, the question of how to balance state and national power was perhaps the single most important and most challenging question confronting the early republic. Uh, we thought this was a great quote that really kind of uh, is a nice little intro or teaser into your essay. And so this got us curious. Um, what inspired you to write this essay? Do you feel that Americans have forgotten or perhaps maybe they never learned um, how the founders viewed federalism, how they understood federalism? And then, of course, how that should understand how we think about it today. What was, what was kind of the impetus behind writing this essay? Well, two things, really. One is a long-term background answer, and that is my interest in the Constitutional Convention and the creation of the Constitution, the ratification of the Constitution. Those, those extraordinary events that occur between 1787 and 1792 that make the Constitution what it is, certainly they are remarkable. Madison himself simply typified them as nothing less than a miracle. Mm-hmm. And it's produced a Constitution, an instrument of government, which has had longer innings than any other instrument of government that modern uh, societies have functioned with. So there's there's an intrinsic interest that I have in the issues surrounding the Constitution itself. My, shall we say, specialty as a historian is about the Civil War era. But in a sense, that too is about the Constitution, because the issues that were at stake in the Civil War era were very much issues of the Constitution, and had long roots back to the Constitutional Convention. So I have a historian's interest that way. But I also have, and this is the second thing, an interest which is more immediate, and it's provoked by the responses that I often hear from people who are exasperated by the sense of the evaporation of control that they have over their own lives, Hmm. over their businesses, over their families, over their schools, uh, from the sense that a faceless executive branch somewhere far away in Washington, D.C., is making up all the rules without any kind of consultation with them. And the answer to that problem often comes in the form of, well, if we would only localize these questions, if we would put issues like this back into the hands of localities, then they would solve it because you're liable to get more wisdom at that level than at the federal level. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at that through the lens of 
both the Constitutional Convention and the Civil War era. And I'm saying, no, that really misconstrues the problem. Hmm. The problem is not where you locate power. The problem is power itself and its balance with liberty. One of the things that I said in that essay was that the founders had a very clear view that power and liberty are like the strong force and the weak force in the universe. I mean, I'm using a modern comparison with metaphysics, with, 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 with physical science, which they would not have had. But they did understand that it was tantamount to something like that. And the great question was, how do you use both of them? You have to have both of them to make a society work. There has to be power. There has to be liberty. If there's nothing but power, then it's tyranny. On the other hand, if there's nothing but liberty, it can be anarchy. I mean, someone has right. to be in charge of the traffic lights. People in the 18th century understood very clearly the dangers of power. You can read this in Cato's letters. You can read it in the Independent Reflector. You can read it in the writings of the members of the Constitutional Convention. They understood that power was toxic. And while you needed power to make a society function or to keep it from being dysfunctional, you had to be very, very careful with it because it easily escaped any kinds of boundaries you, you wanted to set around it. Mm -hmm. Their priority in 1787, 1789, their priority was to create a government that concentrated on liberty. This is what they were most interested about. That was liberty. So they defined power in very small terms because they understood how dangerous power could be. And yet they also understood you had to have it. Now, when people come to me and say, oh, well, we can solve all of our problems if we take power and move it to the local level. No, that's not a solution. That's simply taking the radioactive material and moving it from one place to another. Hmm. The real question, the real problem is posed by power itself. If you move power, let's say, from a centralized agency, from a centralized federal level, and if you move it to the local level, all you're really going to be doing is transferring the problem. And anyone who thinks twice about this will recognize what, I, what I'm talking about. Go to your local school board meeting. I mean, especially if you live in Northern Virginia, go to your local school board meeting and find out how difficult it is to make any kind of impression. Go to your local township supervisors meeting. I mean, here in, I live in Pennsylvania, and the most historic political institution in Pennsylvania history is the township, going all the way back to William Penn's days. Go to your township supervisors meeting and find out very, very quickly just exactly who is in charge. And at that moment, you'll sit there and scratch your head and say, well, I didn't realize these people had this kind of power. Well, yes, they, they do. And it, power can function just as toxically at the local level as it can function at the federal level. The question, again, is not the level. The question is power versus liberty. Once you understand that, then the questions about the various levels become matters of, uh, of scale. You have to have in view this fundamental issue. The priority in a free society is liberty. But in order to make liberty survive, in order to guarantee it survive, you have to protect it with a fence of power. But you've got to be very careful about that fence, or it may electrocute you, whether it's on the local or the federal level. Well, 
the the framers, as, as you note in your essay, were very careful um, about the way they approached this question. And you, you write, the kind of looking back to them can help us appreciate just how unlikely the emergence of the United States as we now know it really was, and just how fortunate we are that it came to be. And you, you also go on to note that, you know, it really was not um, a foregone conclusion that the Union would exist the way it did. Uh, you said the, the 13 newly independent colonies had been founded at different times with different ends in mind by the haphazard practices of their projectors and proprietors. And for most of their existence, each strove to maintain closer ties with the mother country than with, with the others. So this is sort of a, a miraculous thing. And, and we're just hoping that you can kind of walk us through some of the history of the early Republic and, and how we went from this sort of state of 13 different colonies with different ends and different ideas to something like the arrangement that we, we wound up having, you know, today. The 13 North Amer British North American colonies that become the United States were each founded with, with different constituencies, so to speak, and quite frequently for different purposes. And each of them imagined that they had some closer connection to the mother country than they had to other colonies. Uh, you can see this uh, very clearly in William Livingston's writings in The Independent Reflector in the 1750s. I've mentioned The Reflector before, but that's, that's what comes to mind most readily. Um, when, when, when Livingston is talking about a royal government, when he's talking about parliament, when he's talking about Great Britain, he's talking about something which he believes his home colony of New York is a part of. When he talks about the other colonies, it's though he's talking about other planets in the solar system. <laughs> uh, there's no real sense of uh, a connection to them the way there's connection with Great Britain, hmm. which is which is surprising because we're looking at an ocean 3,000 miles wide, and we're thinking, why would they think they have a closer connection to London if they're sitting in New York than to Philadelphia? Well, <laughs> I, I hate to break the news to you, but in the 18th century, physically speaking, that that almost was literally true. Uh, if you were going to connect between New York and Philadelphia, uh, you had very poor ways of doing it. The best way to get, let's say, from Boston to Philadelphia uh, was to get on a boat. Uh, <laughs> venturing along roads that were not much more than cow paths uh, in conveyances that moved at not much more than 20 miles a day. Uh, meant that Philadelphia was really pretty remote from New York and from Boston. And since what connected you, if you were in New York with London, was the ocean crossing, that was actually quite possibly safer and more expeditious than trying to communicate from Boston to Charleston, unless you did that also by boat. So it's not entirely surprising that the colonies didn't at first see themselves as functioning in some kind of union, even though they were, strictly speaking, in terms of geography, uh, cheek by jowl with each other. They just didn't see themselves that way. Communication and transportation promoted a very different sense. Now, what happens in the 1760s and the 1770s is a political crisis that forces them into each other's arms. And the curiosity is you see very early on a sense that these colonists who up to, let's say, 1774 and the meeting of the First Continental Congress really thought of themselves as being something entirely different from each other. Now, because they're all on the sharp end 
of British imperial policy, suddenly discover that they've got much more in common than they thought they did. You have Patrick Henry coming to the First Continental Congress and saying in surprising terms, uh, I do not think of myself as a Virginian. I am an American. And that must have struck on the ears of the members of the First Continental Congress at Carpenter's Hall with, with, with a very strange accent. It's like, we're what? <laughs> but it is something they had to embrace because they were all, as I say, facing the sharp end of British imperial policy. That forces them together. Then we come to the revolution, and the revolution, once again, is going to compel more cooperation. But the real mechanism for promoting a sense of American identity and American purpose really comes out of the Continental Army. Hmm. Because the Continental Army draws in people from all of the colonies. And as John Marshall would later reminisce, and Marshall had been a lieutenant from Virginia, he went through Valley Forge with Washington and the Continental Army. He said that he learned through the experience of the Continental Army to meet and to mingle with people from all of the colonies. He learned, he said, to regard Congress as my government and America as my country. And this is what makes it possible for the representatives of the newly independent states to come together in Philadelphia and exhibit an extraordinary nationality of purpose. Because for 20 years before that, they had been going through a transformation away from the old model of we're closer to London than we are to Philadelphia. They're transitioning away from that model to we have something very much in common here. Something which is made more dramatic by the fact that they are all agreed that the form of government they want is a republic. Today, we tend to regard democratic republics as a default position. Mm -hmm. Well, in the 18th century, democratic republics were a thought experiment. <laughs> it was something that, that people just didn't really think was all that practical. I mean, it was very nice for Mr. Locke and his two treatises on government to describe you know, this desert island kind of experience. But that, I mean, that was Mr. Locke. I and mean, who was seriously going to experiment with that? The only place you might see a practical demonstration of it would be in something like Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, <laughs> which... By the way, people read Robinson Crusoe, they, they read it as kind of adventure literature. Don't. Robinson Crusoe is a very political novel. Hmm. And one aspect of its politics is what Defoe is doing is taking the whole idea of the state of nature that Locke describes in the two treatises and trying to give it realistic flesh. But it's a novel. <laughs> right. So for the Americans to say, well, what we really want to do is we want to have a republic. Uh, this is this is unusual. This is fraught with all kinds of danger. And many people sat on the sidelines quite confident that this was really not going to work. In the article, I actually mentioned very early on the opinion of the French. <laughs> These are the people who were our putative allies. I mean, you read the comments they made just kind of grinning to each other and saying, well, we're just going to wait for the pieces to fall apart in America, <laughs> then we'll step in and pick them up, and then we'll be able to reassert a French empire in North yeah. America. You're thinking, with friends like this, who needs enemies? So the expectations were, were very low, but yet there was this common sense. We are going to create a republic here. They do it as a federated republic. 
Now, they do that for two reasons. One is because there was the simple practicality. People were coming together as representatives of these different states. And the states had been in operation for quite a while. You weren't just going to erase that identity. Mm. The second thing is, it was a very clearly understood principle in Enlightenment political thinking that if you were going to have a republic, it was best that it functioned as a federal republic on the model, for instance, of the Swiss cantons. Mm -hmm. In fact, that became more important for the Americans because in the American environment, we're dealing with a spread of geography, which is, which is much, much, much bigger than the Swiss cantons. Therefore, that would make federation all the more important as a principle in which to come together, because that was what was going to make the idea of the republic work. The idea of having a single concentrated republic with only one government in a, in a capital like New York City or Philadelphia was simply beyond the physical possibilities that the 18th century presented. So the idea of a, of a federation of states was something that 18th century political theory looked at and said, oh yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. Uh, that's the way a republic should be structured if it's going to function properly. So when they come to Philadelphia, they have two priorities in view. It is going to be a federation of states. Because again, 18th century political theory understands that's the most efficient way to sort out a large scale republic. Mm -hmm. And the scale of the, of the American Republic is something which is very much on Madison's mind. Yeah. All right, that's one thing. The second thing they want to come to is this sense of this really is a nation that we're making, not just a league of independent nations. Mm -hmm. uh, they understood. I mean, there was the only question in their minds was what kind of a nation, what are the mechanisms of nationality? But there was never any real doubt that the members of the Constitutional Convention come together to create a nation. And you see this testified to after the convention publishes the Constitution after the Constitution is ratified. On the first anniversary of independence after the Constitutional Convention, we're talking July 4th, 1788, there's an enormous rally at what today we call Independence Hall, then the Pennsylvania State House. Benjamin Rush takes this as proof that we have, behold, created a nation. He uses the word nation. Hmm. Now, he doesn't even use the word union. He uses the word nation. If you look at the political theory textbooks that are written by Americans in the early republic, and I'm thinking here from 1800 to 1840, over and over and over again, what they're stressing is the nation. Joseph Story, uh, probably the most influential political commentator in the pre-Civil War decades, Story makes the point over and over again. What is created under the Constitution is a nation. Uh, when the Marquis de Lafayette is making his valedictory tour of the United States in 1824 to 25, uh, he is met in Philadelphia. Uh, by Charles Jared Ingersoll, who was then a member of Congress. Ingersoll addresses the crowd, addresses Lafayette, behold the nation that we have created. So what they, what they did in Philadelphia in 1787 was understood very clearly. We are making a nation. We are making mm -hmm. a unified country. It's not simply this collection, this gaggle 
of quasi-independent entities. That was that was never mm-hmm. what was in view in the time of the mm-hmm. Constitutional Convention. Yeah, and Dr. Gelzo, just to follow up on that and talk about how uh, the founders created this federalist structure, you have a quote in your piece I thought is pretty interesting and kind of encapsulates what they did. You said that they um, created a national government that, quote, possessed powers independently from the states, as well as the authority to act directly on the American people. So what is, explain that a little bit for us. What does that actually look like in practice? And what powers do the states still retain within that third-rate structure? Well, take a look at how the Constitution describes the state's powers. They're almost all in the negative. States will not do this. States will not, states will not coin money. Ooh, we, we almost take that for granted because we have a national currency. But before 1787, each state was cooking up its own currency. And in some states, those currencies were uh, scarcely uh, more reliable than the paper they were printed on. Uh, not only were they printing their own currencies, but they were writing their own economic laws. The state of New York had tariffs, tariffs <laughs> in dealing with other states. So that if you were a vendor in Pennsylvania, you would have to pay tariffs to do business in New York. Uh, people in New York, some people, Governor George Clinton liked that a lot. They're very possessive about that. Rhode Island is one of the worst examples. Uh, they, they didn't call it Rogue Island for nothing. Because in, in Rhode Island, if, if you, for instance, were, uh, were a vendor in Connecticut and doing business in Rhode Island, I mean, you'd send your goods to Rhode Island, you'd wait for the check, so to speak, and it didn't come. So you would threaten to go to court in Rhode Island, only to find that the judge in Rhode Island would sequester the proceedings and declare that the debt had been paid in certain amounts of Rhode Island currency. So basically, if you were the Connecticut vendor, you got stiffed. (laughs) So states cannot coin their own money. That's an important restriction. I mean, if there's anything which talks about sovereignty, it's being able to coin your own money because that's put you in control of your own economy. Right. States cannot raise their own armies and navies. Oh, you can have local militia, but you can't have a permanent standing army. You can't have a permanent standing navy. I mean, that's, again, if we're talking about sovereignty, that's a tremendous discount on the idea of sovereignty with the states. You go further. States can't conduct their own diplomacy. States can't send ambassadors to other nations and conduct treaties. But you go down this list in Article 1, Section 9, and it's, it's, it is painfully explicit how much the, the powers of these states uh, are being confined. Hmm. And this was deliberate on the part of the members of the Constitutional Convention. They weren't fooling themselves about this. They knew that it, if they didn't do that, then it, there was every possibility that the pieces of the United States could whirl off into the ether and the whole Republican experiment would collapse. I mean, as it was, we were having difficulty with the Spanish and the British trying to lure parts of the United States away to their allegiance. Right. Now, Vermont was conducting negotiations with the Governor General of Canada. Martha's Vineyard was contemplating secession from the United States to reattach itself to Great Britain. I mean, there's some people probably today would say, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Let's get rid of <laughs> right. um, but you know, I'm just saying in, in, the, in the 1780s and 1790s, there were people thinking that way. Out on the frontier, beyond the Appalachians and the Apple. I mean, we, today we think of the Appalachians as a place with a nice trail to hike on. 
the Appalachians were understood in the 1790s as a serious obstacle, a serious physical geographical obstacle. I mean, that was the American Himalayas. Hmm. And, on the, and, and settlements on the other side of the Appalachians were being wooed by the Spaniards. The Spaniards were offering them, I mean, they wanted to make them an offer they couldn't refuse. Right? You, want, you, want, you, want, you want to trade? Well, the way you're going to trade with the world is to go down the Ohio, down the Mississippi to New Orleans. Well, we own the Mississippi and New Orleans. So if you want to trade with the world, you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to make an arrangement with us. And th there was this constant lure by the Spaniards, come over to our side, because this is the way you're going to have access to world markets. Americans were very concerned about these issues. And in the Constitutional Convention, they're trying to address this. So they're saying, all right, this is what states can do. But this is mostly what states can't do. And you go down that list, and it's a list of can't do, can't do, can't do, can't do. Once you get to the end of that list in Article 1, the word sovereignty begins to pale on the lips. Uh, it, it, you're just not working with anything that looks like that. And that was delivered on, part, on the part of the Constitutional Convention. Now, of course, people in the decades that separate the Constitutional Convention from the Civil War are going to talk about states' rights, states' rights, states' rights. It's interesting to watch how people talk about states' rights in the decades before the Civil War, because none of them actually mean it. <laughs> states' rights is, is one of those phrases that people pick up and use when it's useful for them and then uh, fold away in the closet uh, when it isn't. Interesting. Uh, Southern states, for instance, were constantly yelping about states' rights to protect slavery. Ah, but when it came to the rendition of fugitive slaves in the North, forget states' rights. Oh, no, no. They wanted a centralized government that would retrieve their fugitives and return them uh, to slavery. So you had states' rights being cited on both sides of the Potomac and both sides of the Ohio River. And usually it depended on whose ox was being gored. Uh, states' rights was really, in that respect, never, never more than a talking point. The practical reality was that this was really a nation and a national system. And Lincoln makes that as clear as I think anybody could have made it in his first inaugural address and in the address he gives to the special session of Congress on July 4th, 1861. He says, what is, what is going to be accomplished by secession? The day after secession, Kentucky is still going to be as, as far away from Ohio as it was before, which is to say not far. Uh, are, are you going to be able to conduct business any better as two separate political entities than you were as one? I mean, Lincoln uses the analogy of divorce. I mean, he had been an attorney. He had had divorce cases in Illinois. Uh, he, he says in, a, in the case of a divorce, a husband and a wife that are divorced, they can go out of the sight of each other and never see each other again. But Kentucky and Ohio can't do that. All right. They're stuck with each other geographically. So you're going to invoke federalism. You're going to invoke states' rights to give license to that kind of breakup, that, that just doesn't work. I mean, that, that turns federalism into, into a hoodoo idea, not a representative of a practical reality. So when we look at this question about federalism, let's be very careful about what we're doing. Let's be very careful, first of all, about the history that we're setting aside, because when we start talking about devolving things to the local level, we need to pay attention to how much attention the Constitutional Convention paid to that, 
And how often examples of that devolution scare the willies out of the Constitutional Convention. And I mentioned New York tariffs and Rhode Island economic policies only as an example. If you want to talk about uh, about a federalism that just sends everything down to local levels, then be prepared to replicate the experience that the Constitutional Convention was supposed to remedy. Mm. The other thing is this, and that is we, we are and have been a, a physical geographical unit. And you can't set that easily aside and say, well, there's going to be a completely different set of rules in one state and a completely different set of rules in another state or within a state, a set of one rules in one county, a set of rules in another county. That's an invitation to chaos. When you get chaos, that's when you get exasperation. When you get exasperation, that's when people start reaching for tyrannical solutions. Another problem, by the way, that Lincoln diagnosed in his Lyceum speech of 1838. Sure. So when we we look at these questions, let's look at them, first of all, from the point of view of the Constitutional Convention and its intentions. But let's also bear in mind the point I made at the beginning, and that is the nature of power itself. If you're saying we're going to solve all of our problems by devolving things down to the local level, please look at what happens on the local level when that power gets transferred there. People can get as drunk on power on a school board as they can in the halls of Congress. And the results in both cases are the stymieing of real citizenship. And what we want, what do we really want in our American system? We want citizens who are operating as free individuals, as responsible individuals, as intelligent individuals, who understand each other's rights and the natural rights that we embrace in the Declaration of Independence. And we get that by the sober and judicious use of power at a variety of levels. We don't solve it simply by playing with the levels. You've been, uh, you know, at the beginning of, of this podcast, you sort of mentioned that you had an historical interest in, in this subject, but also that you, you thought it was as timely, given kind of the nature of our politics today. And, and, and we've talked a lot about the history, but I, I wanted to see if we could venture a little bit into how you see this kind of playing out today. You know, you mentioned in, in this previous answer that states' rights for a long time was something that just kind of got thrown around whenever it was advantageous for um, a certain interest group or a certain group of people to kind of use that term. Do you think something similar is happening with kind of localism or, or, or federalism today? I mean, you know, one thing that I think about, for example, is we're, it's very possible a lot of conservatives are advocating for abortion to get kind of devolved to the state level, right, overturn Roe, something like that. There are other issues in which Democrats kind of want other issues to be devolved to the state level. I mean, I guess I'm wondering, do you, do you actually think these are principled claims that like, hey, we really believe this should kind of happen at a, a localized level? And, and or is it, do you think something similar is happening And in, in the sense that people are kind of just using federalism and the way that people in the early republic once used states' rights? Well, I think that's sometimes the case, but I think a lot of the times the arguments miss the real elephant in the room, and that is the regulatory state. It seems to me that one of the great problems that we deal with, and in fact, I I would say almost the principal problem that the complaints that people have about centralization of power have, what the real root of that is, is not that they're looking at 
constitutional government. They're not looking at Congress. They're not looking at the executive. They're not looking at judiciary as being the real uh, fountain of, of centralized power. What we're often encountering more and more and more is the centralization of power in the hands of a regulatory state. And that is a regulatory state, which has almost become a fourth branch of government, to which there is no reference whatsoever in the Constitution. Uh, it was it was said many years ago by by an interesting thinker, uh, James Burnham, that capitalism is in danger of being supplanted by managerialism. That what has occurred in our time is a managerial revolution, and what that has done is to create uh, a state, a regulatory state that promotes authority and discipline over uh, freedom and and private initiative. Now, what this means in terms of what we experience today is most of the time, the things that we complain the most about in terms of centralization, the things we complain the most about when we're appealing for localism are not complaints about the constitutional structure of government. What we're complaining about is the transfer of power into the hands of executive departments, commissions, boards, agencies, which don't seem to have any accountability to anybody. And mm. may, maybe this is an example of what Robert Michaels called the iron law of oligarchy, that all forms of government sooner or later uh, morph into some kind of uh, form of, of oligarchy. But what it does illustrate to me is a comment made by Theodore Lowy, that we have arrived at a place where the administrative state where the regulate regulative agencies have basically sidelined the legislative and judicial branches. And Theodore Lowy made this comment, which I thought was, was enormously illuminating. Congress, he said, Congress passes instructions to administrators rather than laws for its citizens. And I'm afraid mm -hmm. that's painfully true. But as I say, it's the invisible elephant in the room because most of the time that's that's causing most of our discontent, but we don't see it that way. Now, what would be the solution? Shall we? I mean, some people would recommend, all right, let's go in and abolish the regulatory state. <laughs> well, that's not really practical either. Uh, we live in an environment of a great concentration, a great urbanization, where you know, if somebody does something that has next door, it has an immediate effect on somebody else. Right. Um, property itself uh, is more intangible today. When we talk about intellectual property rights and so on like that. And, and really, I don't think there are too many takers. If I put the question in terms of, well, who wants to get rid of the FDA? Or who wants to get rid of the EPA? Who wants to get rid of the Federal Trade Commission? When you when you reflect on it, no, no, we don't want to really get rid of these things, despite the fact that we've got 220 such agents, at least by my last count. There are 220 such agencies. Abraham Lincoln got through the Civil War with just five agencies. But all right, that's, that's another story. <laughs> um, what we may need to do is to look at some serious reform of the regulatory state. One person who I think has written probably as clearly on this subject as anyone I know is Philip Hamburger uh, at Columbia Law. Uh, his books uh, on administrative law are 
extremely revealing. And he has now a new book called Purchasing Submission uh, about how government agencies are able to coerce behavior outside the boundaries set by the legislative branch or the judicial branch. So I think that a lot of our attention should get devoted. If, if we are really concerned about these questions of liberty and power, if we're really concerned about these questions of federalism and the level on which power and authority should be exercised, I think the place we need to devote a lot of our attention for reform is to the, the regulatory state that has grown up seemingly without notice ever since the days of the New Deal. And we need to look very seriously at how that regulatory state operates outside the boundaries of constitutional limitation, outside the boundaries of federalism. Because I think really a lot of the pain that we experience and that we think will be cured simply by localizing all of our problems mm -hmm. is really not coming from that quarter at all. It's really coming from the nature of the regulatory state. And the regulatory state can be just as nasty on the local level uh, as it is at a national uh, a state or at mm -hmm. a municipal level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Dr. Gelzo, a final question for you. Um, and I think your point about reforming administrative state is well taken. I was wondering, um, you know, particularly among conservatives, there's always been a preference for subsidiarity that you want to have. And you've already talked about this different ways throughout your, your conversation here. But uh, that you want to have power and decisions made at the level closest to the people. So it's not a faceless bureaucrat. It's somebody that lives down the street from you. Um, is there a tension there between subsidiarity and the type of nationalism we're talking about the founders espouse at the convention, or is there not really a tension there? Well, I know there is a tension because it depends on mm -hmm. issues. If you have to make decisions about national security, you don't want them being made by the local township supervisors. Mm -hmm. Uh, if we wait for every township supervisory board or every municipal or county board to decide what we're going to do about the military budget, uh, we will find ourselves in a very parlous condition. I mean, that's a, as soon as you put it in those terms, there's a moment when everybody recognizes, no, we don't want localism. Mm -hmm. right. um, there are many places in which localism will not function strictly as localism. What about riparian rights? What about the navigation of major waterways? Uh, this is still an economy where a lot of our a lot of our economy moves on our inland riverways. Uh, think of this enormous waterway system that drains the central part of the North American continent: the Missouri River, the Ohio River, uh, down to the Mississippi. That is still an extremely important economic factor. The port of New Orleans is still the largest port in the United States. It surprises my students. I, I ask them, what do you think the largest port is? And they'll, they'll say, well, New York. Or maybe a few of the more sophisticated will say Houston. All right, they're big. But New Orleans, New Orleans is still you know, the big easy. Um, because so much of our commerce uh, moves down along those waterways. Are the problems of those waterways going to be managed adequately by purely by local authorities? No, of course not. We realize that right away. So we we need to look at how agencies, how regulation, how power is distributed in the healthiest way and make those determinations. I don't have an easy algorithm, and I don't think there is an easy algorithm for it. That's why when I hear people pop up with quick solutions like, well, let's just localize everything. I know what they're doing. 
they're they're responding to pain. And believe me, I feel their pain. <laughs> I I have been in local government myself. I have seen how it operates. And I also have seen that, quite frankly, it is not often pretty. Given given some of my memories, given some of my experience of that, um, there are some people on local levels of government I would never want to see power pass into the hands of. Uh, we have to be thoughtful. We have to be careful. We have to do a comprehensive look at how we are living in the 21st century and prioritize at the very top the importance of liberty, but also to understand how we need to use power responsibly and where that should be distributed. That may really be, especially with the, the presence of the regulatory state as a factor, that may be the big challenge of conservative thinking for the next uh, the next several decades thinking through that and coming up with the solutions that will promote liberty uh, that it seems to me is the most important thing liberty is always number one on the agenda of <laughs> the founders people often complain about gridlock in congress uh, i hear that in, among my students and i say to them look gridlock is what they wanted <laughs> they want uh, the founding fathers the founding fathers didn't give a wet slap about efficiency. <laughs> what they cared about was liberty. And if if what you got was was something less than efficiency, that was fine with them. I think it was Washington who, when when he was asked about what was, what the purpose of the Senate was, he said approximately the same purpose that the saucer is for the teacup. You you pour the tea into the saucer so that it can cool. And that that analogy, it seems to me, is 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 workable on many levels in American government. So I I part with this uh, with this formula: liberty is what we desire the most because it's a reflection of our natural propensities, of our natural rights. But we also have to use power. How wise will we be in the use of power? The founding fathers were abundantly wise and their use of mm. it. Let us emulate their example. I think that's a wonderful place to end it, Dr. Gelzo. Thanks so much for joining us. I think your historian's perspective is super interesting on this issue, and I think it'll be very helpful for our audience. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh, very good. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful to talk today. Absolutely. If you'd like to read Dr. Gelzo's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.